Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking fish, frogs, Tasmanian devils and Neanderthals. Plus, find out what an airzooka is and how you can make one. All that and more coming up for your science on a Sunday, right here on 2XX Community Radio. This is Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX Community Radio. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you all. And uh, thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand on this lovely St. Patrick's Day. And uh, joining me on St. Pat's Day in the studio, we've got one, two, three lovely ladies in with me. My name's Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. And uh, let's start on my left this morning. We've got Sian. Good morning, Sian. Morning, Brad. How are you going today? Not too bad. Now, I actually haven't asked you, Sian. Is your name Irish or Celtic? It's Welsh, actually. It's Welsh. Yeah. Ah, okay. So we won't talk about that then. Not Irish <laughs> at all. Um, but lovely to know. Thank you. <laughs> also joining me in the studio is Amy this morning. Good morning, Amy. Hi, Brad. How are you going? Good. Good. Do you have any Irish connections? Possibly. Possibly? Possibly. You've got a big family. Massive. Massive. Huge. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> And finally in the studio today, we've got Elise. Good morning, Elise. Good morning, Brad. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Do you have a bit of Irish in you? I Well, I'm a bit of a mix. I have some Scottish, some Irish, some German. I'm a, you know, I'm all over the shop. So, you're, you're a typical yeah. Australian, just a, re- a bit. I really am, aren't I? <laughs> it's great. Fantastic. Well, it's lovely to have you all with us this morning. Today's show has a bit of an animal theme to it to start with and a, a whole lot of stuff coming up. Uh, varying from Neanderthals to Facebook. But we should kick it off with this day in science. Today, of course, being the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, uh, as well as being the uh, the fantastic day of drinking Guinness. Uh, scientists have also done a lot of good work on this day. And uh, we're going to kick it off in 1845, when a method of manufacturing elastic or rubber bands was patented by British uh, person Stephen Perry and Thomas Barnabas. Uh, In the early 19th century, sailors actually brought home items made by Central and South American natives from the sap of rubber trees. And this included footwear, garments and bottles, a whole range of different stuff. Um, In 1820, uh, Thomas Hancock actually cut up one of these bottles to create garters and waistbands. And then by 1843, uh, they'd secured patent rights uh, for vulcanised India rubber. And, uh, of course, rubber suddenly has so many different uses today. But it all started back in 1845 when uh, some British people copied the South American natives. So there you go. Also on this day, uh, back in 1881, is the birth of Walter Rudolf Hess, a Swiss physiologist who shared the 1949 Nobel Prize for Physiology for his discovery of the functional organisation of the interbrain as coordinator of the activities of the internal organs. This was one of the first experiments that actually looked at different parts of the brain doing different things, which is pretty awesome because I think we're still discovering what parts of the brain do what even today. Uh, but back in uh, 1949, uh, Hess was uh, implanting electrodes in the brains of rats and locating the areas of the brain associated with certain instincts. And uh, through his research, he did identify which parts of the brain are involved in functioning the body's internal organs and also areas associated with those things that just kind of happen, like sleep, hunger, and our fight-or-flight mechanism. 
Finally, on this day in 1980, the US Supreme Court was hearing arguments about whether a patent could be issued for a genetically engineered bacterium in uh, a case of Diamond versus Chakrabarti. Uh, the landmark decision found that uh, five to four judges agreed that the patent office should recognise any new and useful manufacture or composition of matter. And the fact that microorganisms are alive was without legal significance, which is really interesting because that's way back in 1980. But, of course, today, just recently, there's been a, a court case looking at um, patenting human DNA, uh, with, uh, you know, the question is, can you patent naturally occurring DNA, stuff that's actually within our bodies? Can you put a patent on a gene? Do you think that's fair enough? It's an interesting subject, I think. I think yeah. there's going to be a lot of, you know, controversy that happens and a lot of discussion going on about it. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, if you've got a gene inside your body that someone else has a patent on, I mean, that's kind of a bit weird. That is a bit strange. You could, yeah, imagine what they could do with it. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, the, the, the reason they're patenting it is uh, because of... Um, the the role it plays and um, the the big one at the moment, uh, and I'm trying to remember what it was looking at. It was either cancer or diabetes. I forget. But the the judgment on it um, was basically uh, the judge decided that naturally occurring uh, nucleic acid or DNA that has been isolated from the cellular cellular environment can be validated validly patented under the Patents Act. And that's because there had been human intervention and consequently an invention it was because they'd actually had to, you know, do some chemical testing to find it and work out what was going on. But, I mean, in some ways, you know, that's the only way you can discover what DNA is inside you is by going in and finding it. So is that valid? I'm not sure. But it's an interesting idea. Yeah. yeah, and it's—I mean—it also comes in commercially too, because whether people are still going to develop uh, and look at DNA if uh, if they're not going to be able to patent it, that means they can't make a commercial success out of it. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, certainly in this case, uh, with the uh, scanning, ah, it's breast cancer. I've just remembered. That's what the the, the gene was looking at: breast cancer. Because currently, one company holds the patent for this, um, and they're the only ones that can perform the test for this gene. Uh, because they hold the patent for it. Um, other companies have been doing it within Australia, uh, and they uh, this company got quite angry at them and, and told them to stop, but they kept doing it within Australia, and then they kind of backed off. But now with the court case ruling that they do have a legal patent, um, anything could happen. So interesting stuff there. But, of course, that's... Uh, the past bringing up to current day stuff and uh, as usual there's a lot of different stuff happening this week in science and we're going to start by looking at what's happening in the animal kingdom and Sian you've been going underwater trying to find some fish yeah so we've heard a lot about visual camouflage before so like chameleons and stick insects but not very much about chemical camouflage so this is about a fish called the pirate perch and in Virginia A bunch of scientists were doing some tests with frogs and bugs. And these frogs and insects, they don't like to go into ponds that have fish in them because the fish are more likely to eat the the eggs of the frogs or the insects. Um, So they were seeing which ponds the frogs and the bugs were more likely to colonise. And they found out that, as they expected, they wouldn't go to any of the ponds with fish in them, except for one particular fish, and this was the pirate perch. And they had no idea why, actually, this is happening, but it seems that the pirate perch has some sort of chemical camouflage. Um, 
They say that any organism produces a whole lot of chemicals. Uh, the pirate perch may have evolved to not release some of them, or they might mask them with another chemical. They're still not quite sure which one it is. Uh, but they want to have a look to see if it can be find in, found in any other species, because, of course, this is really interesting that suddenly this fish, it actually can't be seen by, they, they've extended this to a whole bunch of different fish, um, sorry, to a whole bunch of different frogs and insects and something, and they can't find it, they, they all can't see this fish. So, so is it, can I just clarify, is it using chemicals to change its colour, or is it just that it's chemical, the chemicals it, put, it puts out means that the other fish can't sense that it's there? Yeah, it's, it's the latter. It's okay. not changing its colour because that'd be visual camouflage. Yeah. Uh, so this is for some reason the other uh, insects and frogs can't sense it. And so they think it's via smell because uh-huh. underwater smell is very important for sensing uh, other animals and fish. Yeah. Um, and so they, they're trying to look for it in other species. So the, there are certain conditions that favour chemical camouflage. So this is, again, in water. Also in the dark, it's very important to have a good sense of smell. Um, and they also think that they might be able to find it in combination with visual camouflage because they said uh, it doesn't do a lot of good to be visually cryptic if you're smelly. So <laughs> they're going on to look for this in other species. But I think that's really interesting that yeah. they could suddenly become invisible just by a bunch of chemicals that they're either emitting or not emitting. Yeah, yeah I wonder if that could be used by um, humans when they're di- diving um, with fish or anything like that. If you suddenly, you know, have this sort of like, they often have the uh, electrical um, pulses and that sort of thing to scare away sharks who have the strong um, electrical sensors, but whether a similar thing could be used uh, with just putting a little chemical patch on your body so you release these chemicals and you become chemically camouflaged from the fish, whether you could swim around better, closer, or whether we just disturb too much water in the first place. (laughs) 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 They know that we're definitely there and see that something's going on. Hmm. Certainly some interesting possibilities there. Cool. All right. Well, from uh, fish, we'll go, uh, well, not quite completely off land, but we'll go amphibious and move into the frog kingdom. Indeed. Indeed. So there, uh, if anyone's done New South Wales HSC biology, you may have heard of the gastric brooding frog. And the gastric brooding frog actually swallows its eggs. Uh, and inside the mother's stomach, they develop into tadpoles and then into frogs. And then when they're ready, they let their mother know and they, they pop out of her mouth. So they existed about... So hold on. Okay. <laughs> well, let's just, let's okay. just clarify this point. I'm really this excited pretty... by this. I know. So the, the eggs are laid in the mouth. No, the eggs are, are laid on land, I think. Yep. Um, yeah. And they gobble them up. And then, yep, and then she swallows them. And they've got, like, no, these no. tadpoles swimming in her stomach yeah. once they hatch. So they don't, they don't just vomit them up when they're tadpoles. No. They vomit them up when they're little frogs. Yeah, yeah, they get to Jeez. the point when they're... Yeah, there's tiny... You see a photo of them and oh. there's the mother with her mouth open and a little I mean, frog sitting that, there. That'd be, you know, worse than butterflies in your stomach. That'd yeah. be weird having these tadpoles <laughs> going around. in your stomach. Oh, jeez. Now I'm feeling, like, iffy too, because I go swimming in rivers down in Canberra. And, you know, you if might I, some frogs. Well, if I swallow frog eggs, do I end up with tadpoles swimming around in my stomach and... I'd imagine the conditions in your stomach would be a little bit different okay, to this yeah, frog. Right. I think you're all right. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Um, so they existed about 30 years ago, and by the time anyone really got excited by what they did, because not many people had seen them, they were pretty much extinct. So some New South, uh, University of New South Wales and University of Newcastle scientists have actually taken some carcasses that were stored in a deep freeze and recovered tissues from the gastric brooding frog. 
and they have done somatic cell nuclear transfer, which I think Elise can tell us a little bit about. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely give it a go. So from what I understand, somatic cell nuclear transfer is when they get... So you have um, sex cells and you have the other cells in your body. So what they do is they get... It's not the sex cells, it's the other cells in your body. And they remove the DNA from that cell and then they put it into an empty egg cell. Um, from the frog and then it grows and obviously because it has all of the genetic material that it needs it grows into a full frog like it should so yep. and that's it's how they actually clone some things which is quite interesting very good so yeah that's that's what they've done they've implanted dead the dead cell nucleus from a uh, gastric brooding frog into a fresh egg from another related frog and um, they noticed that the, the cells started to divide and then again, which they all got really excited about and there's lots of high fives apparently. <laughs> um, and then it went on to develop an embryo which lasted 36 hours. So they've decided that they're going to team up with some US scientists um, because this is a field that there's not much been done in before. So um, they they have no idea how it's going to how it's going to go, but they're hoping to create a tool using the animal's DNA, which can future-proof species and later on bring back other extinct animals to life, giving giving those those animals a second crack at life, which was a direct quote from the article, and I love that. I think. Yeah. A second crack at life sounds pretty good. Everyone so, needs a second crack at life. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, do we know what sort of? Um, DNA, they they need to do that. Like, I mean, there's the old Jurassic Park when you take the blood from the mosquito that's in the sap. But does because these are, are samples that of of tissue that's been kept. Yeah. Isn't it? Well, it says they're they're whole carcasses, so yeah. they've obviously got yeah. as a long few as, options. As long as the tissue isn't degraded, I'm yeah. pretty sure that you can get mm. it from just about anything. You can get skin cells and um, get the DNA material from skin cells as well. So. Yeah. It would be interesting because, I mean, the first thing that popped into my mind was the Tasmanian tiger, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which they'd, of course, have good tissue samples of because there's plenty of preserved tigers about... Well, not plenty. There's a few preserved tigers about yep. the place. Um, that'd be really interesting. Well, you wonder how many things are in, in deep freezers around the place too. And... <laughs> Just randomly. <laughs> What's in your deep freezer, Amy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't got to the bottom of it yet. There you go. You might have yeah. I mean, and maybe even the dodo too. That'd be like the ultimate, wouldn't it? Getting dodos back. That's like the symbol of extinct animals, I reckon. That'd be cool. Be pretty impressive. <laughs> it would be pretty awesome. But yeah, I think a Tassie tiger would be nice down here in Australia. Um, and, uh, you know, possibly um, also having issues with another animal down in Tasmania uh, heading towards extinction um, with the Tassie devil. Uh, you may have heard of the devil face tumour, um, which is being passed between devils when they bite each other. And it's been around since 1996 and spreading quickly through the population of the animals, um, which is really sad uh, because so far about 90% of devils have been killed by the disease. So it's really dwindling their population numbers down in Tassie. And uh, experts have been looking at a captive breeding program to try and uh, hold out hope um, for the devils and to try and help um, them repopulate. Uh, and originally, scientists thought that it may have something to do with a lack of genetic diversity um, within the devils, and so you know, inbreeding and that sort of thing creates uh, issues with the uh, DNA and the immune system. Um, and so they were, they were thinking that was why the devil's immune system wasn't fighting off the tumor cells. Um, because, you know, normally when these sorts of foreign cells pass from animal to animal, uh, the immune system kicks in and it uh, gets rid of those tumours, but clearly something was going on with these devils. Um, 
And yet, until just recently, scientists thought that it was because of little genetic diversity. Um, but a new study that was just published uh, recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science uh, by a researcher from the University of Sydney, Kathy Belov, um, has shown that um, that it, uh, using by focusing their attention on an important group of immune system molecules called major histocompatibility compatibility, or MHC for short, class 1, uh, they've helped uh, the immune system recognise these foreign substances um, uh, within uh, the Tassie devil system. Uh, so what they did was they studied the devil fascia tumour disease cells in the lab um, and found that certain genes that are required for these MHC molecules to be expressed on the surface of cells had actually been suppressed within the devils. Um, and so... Uh, what they've found is that the tumour has evolved a way to hide from the immune system uh, by, um, by down-regulating uh, the MHC or basically switching off uh, the parts of um, our body that produce the MHC. Um, and so it then makes the tumour invisible to the immune system and if it's invisible to the immune system, the immune system's not going to be doing much about it. So it's almost like a chemical camouflage, really, <laughs> the way it's developing in here. And so what they, they've found is that by using this knowledge, they're thinking it might be possible to, in the future to vaccinate Tassie devils against the disease um, by pre-priming their immune system with some tumour cells, but some tumour cells that um, do express the MHC um, on the surface so that they can um, start working on it um, and so that the devils will recognise these tumour cells when they come into their body. Um, so this is a huge breakthrough because scientists have really been working for quite a while on the Tassie devil tumour cells. I know I've talked about it a few times now on Fuzzy Logic um, as to how what's been happening and how it's going. Um, so hopefully with this uh, captive breeding program that's in place uh, trying to produce a genetically diverse population of the, uh, the Tassie devils, if we can vaccinate them um, and, and start producing devils uh, that are immune uh, to the tumours, uh, hopefully uh, we can um, start combating this facial tumour and, and, and get rid of it completely. I'm not sure how long we'll have to keep vaccinating Tassie devils for. Yeah, it'd be interesting Is it, if like, their parents will just bring them in and, and <laughs> Yeah, them down. Well, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we'll have to, um, was it year 10 at, at Tassie devil school? They'll yeah. They'll have to, have to <laughs> yeah. line them all up and you get the jabs all together. Do they get a lolly at the end? <laughs> I'm sure they get some sort of reward. Maybe a little a meat, meat pop or something yeah, like that. Pop. I <laughs> love that. Yeah. It's interesting. I didn't realise this, but um, Tassie devils are the world's largest remaining marsupial carnivore. This is Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Broderick here in the studio with Sian, Amy and Elise. We were talking animals before, but we're going to change tack a little bit. We're going to go into the world of 3D printing. If you're listening a couple of weeks ago on Fuzzy Logic, you may have heard us talk about 3D printing tissue and making ears and crazy stuff like that with living tissue. But now uh, we've got a new breakthrough this week. Um, 3D printing some bone yes 3d printing some bone so you know some people love 3d printing and one man in particular actually can't get it out of his head literally i know so funny um so basically what has happened in the past week is that um an unidentified man has had 75 percent of his skull replaced with a 3d printed implant made by oxford performance materials which is in the US. So the FDA have approved it for use, 
And they scanned the man's skull so they could get an exact replica of what it should look like. And then they make it from a mould. And it takes about two weeks to do. But the, the really interesting part is that they actually make it so it has some divots and things into it, which makes it a lot easier for the bone, the natural bone that grows onto it, to um, take hold. And uh, so like little growth sites yeah, to help the bone. Yeah, little growth sites, which I on. think is really, really yeah. good. So it um, it's obviously it can shorten surgery time, it's less risky, and it also costs less, mm. which is really good. And it has a lot of potential applications in the future as well with other people's bones. Like any bone can be can, can be built with this technology. Yeah. And so they're saying that it can even help soldiers and things like that, which is yeah. quite interesting. So how did they actually scan the body? Do you know? Well, this time they used a CT scan mm. to do it. Okay. Um, but yeah, and they can make any, so you can look exactly like yourself, <laughs> which I think is really it's really good. Yeah. Do you um, get to pick the color that it's printed in? Well, it's uh, I'm pretty like sure I know it's, it's you know printed in white. Right. That's yeah. really boring. Yeah. Like, but, oh, I've got a purple skull. And, uh, so I don't know if I missed this, Elise, but what are they actually printing in? Like, is it is it silica or is it bone they're printing with? Or well, it's this thing called. Osteofab, and it's um, it's a combination. Osteofab, so that's <laughs> it's fabulous. Osteofab. Well, why don't you get osteofab? Replace all your bones in your body with osteofab. Exactly. Well, it's a it's a combination of PEKK, which is a sort of um, like durable plastic. Uh, that sounds like yeah, polyethylene something or other. Ketone, ketone at the end because I read it and I was like ketone, ketone. <laughs> what? But yeah, it's something something ketone, ketone. Okay. And um, yeah, it's non-reactive, so it's like titanium in that it's non reactive cool um but yeah but it, won't sit off airport metal detectors no it won't which fun, which is fun you won't have to don't do have the to body scans and stuff carry around nice. the certificates yes i so, have yeah. big nails in my bones <laughs> i have had a hip replacement yeah uh, that's really cool because yeah i think a lot of the time um with implants and that sort of thing you know you have to make best guesses and yeah. that sort of stuff and it's such fine procedures but i know with um 3D printing, they can print on such a fine level. Um, we've got one at work, which is just a plastic 3D printer. That's pretty amazing. Um, but it can, it's, it's accurate to 0.2 of a millimetre. Really? Which is that's crazy. That's, I know, that's very accurate. <laughs> well, yeah, two, 200 micrometres if you want to get... You know, wow. that's like smaller than... Um, uh, I'm just trying to remember the width of a hair. I, I think it's slightly bigger than the width of a hair that it, that it's printing. But, I mean, that's hugely accurate. And um, this isn't the most expensive 3D printer on the market either, so I'm sure you could get more expensive ones for medical purposes that are just yeah. making it highly accurate and highly useful. Yeah, and they say that it you know, costs less as well. And yeah. if people need to get brain surgeries and stuff, you know how they sometimes have to get a bit of their brain cut out yeah. so with a swelling? Well, they can just, you know, make a little... <laughs> Replacement one there and just wow. put it over, and, and they like, could like, and if you're going to have to go in multiple times, you know, they could just make a little handle on there so you can <laughs> exactly. it off. Just, and, it's like a, yeah, yeah. Hinge, it'll be great. So many future applications for this wonderful technology. <laughs> definitely, definitely, some amazing stuff happening in the future there with our skulls and other bones. Yeah, um, other bones in, in particular as well. Definitely. Definitely. Well, look, I'm going to go right back into the past now, from oh. the future to the past, and uh, look at uh, heads again, uh, skulls, but um, not skulls of humans, skulls of Neanderthals. Um, Neanderthals, of course, one of the uh, the predecessor. well, not quite a predecessor of humans, because they were around about the same time as Homo sapiens, which is where we humans came from. Neanderthals were a different species. Uh, they lived in parts of Europe, Central Asia and Middle East uh, for up to about 300,000 years. 
but then vanished from the fossil record about thirty to 40,000 years ago. And why they actually disappeared, what happened to them? One of the greatest mysteries of anthropology. Um, there are theories that they may have been victims of climate change or were just simply massacred by their homo sapien cousins, um, which is us, aren't we lovely aren't people? We, lovely? we are such <laughs> massacring our cousins. But experts from the University of Oxford and the Natural History Museum in London are now thinking that the answer could lie in the available brain power, uh, which is really interesting um, theory. Uh, Neanderthals were uh, stockier um, than atomic, anatomically modern humans who shared the planet with the same time as them, but their brains were the same size, so bigger bodies um, but smaller brains relative. Um, and as a result, uh, Neanderthals would have required proportionally more neural matter to maintain and control their larger bodies, they reckon. Uh, so comparing the skulls of 32 Homo sapiens and 13 Neanderthals, these researchers from London um, also established that the Neanderthals had larger eye sockets, indicating bigger eyes and uh, visual cortices, which is what um, connect the part of the brain that regulates your vision. Um, and so if they had these bigger eyes and bigger visual cortices, it meant that more of their brain would have then been devoted to just being able to see things. Which is probably kind of useful when you're, you know, a, a hunter-type species yeah. um, because you, you, you're very visually aware, you've got more idea what's going on, you can take in more things from your surroundings. Um, but it also meant um, that they had less of their brain to deal with other functions like social networking. Um, <laughs> you know, and not so much the social networking in the form that we know it now, but actually, like, interacting with each other and forming groups. Um, and the large social groups is part of the reason why um, Neanderthals were uh, Neanderthals died out, but Homo sapiens were able to stay together as they were able to work together in a group. Um, so, um, And the archaeological records also seem to support the fact that... Um, Neanderthals were limited to smaller groups. Um, you know, they transported raw materials over shorter distances. Uh, rare finds of symbolic artefacts mean they had less of an ability to trade. Um, whereas Homo sapiens were more likely um, to, you know, be more a, a more collective species um, and uh, more uh, and work together. Uh, so basically, shows that humans won out because we're actually social people. So that's right. So you look social networking back in um, back in what is it thirty to forty thousand years ago <laughs> served us well. Absolutely. Um, social networking now, I'm not sure, necessarily sure whether it serves us well, but it certainly shows a little bit about us, doesn't it, Amy? It sure does. So Cambridge researchers have found out that patterns in uh, your likes on Facebook can provide estimates of race, age, IQ, and sexuality. So. They decided to get 8,000 US Facebook users together and developed an algorithm based on their uh, likes that they have on Facebook to create personality profiles. And uh, so they just used the things that they liked as opposed to the other information that they might have on Facebook and found that uh, they were 88% accurate in distinguishing between males and females and 95% accurate in distinguishing between African-Americans and, and white Americans. So, um, yeah, they could also pin things like sexual orientation, substance abuse, and whether or not you had separated parents. So you may have noticed on Facebook lately they will tailor advertising and marketing specifically 
to you. So you'll be sitting there and apparently I need to eat better, need a husband and enjoy music. So I think that's that's pretty close. <laughs> um, so they're saying that, um, yes, these things can be similar with the information that you use when you uh, perform web searches, uh, send emails and even your mobile phone activity. So some other Stuff they found out was that extroverts like Jennifer Lopez and introverts like The Dark Knight. Um, you were liberal and old oh, people who had liberal and artistic tendencies uh, were into Leonard Cohen and Oscar Wilde, whereas those who were classified as conservatives were into NASCAR racing and the film Monsters in Law. <laughs> so um, it re- relied more on inference. So uh, the people they pinned to um, be homosexual didn't necessarily like pages about gay marriage, but it was more based on their music and TV interests. Um, okay, so that, yeah. I mean, that's really interesting that you can make such broad generalisations about people. Like, you'd think, oh, no, surely not, but they're doing it with quite a reasonable accuracy yeah, for a lot absolutely. of these things, which is really slightly worrying. I would actually be really interested to see them do it on my profile. <laughs> I think like, you should say that, Elise. Really, yeah, well, yeah. So uh, there is a website that you can go to and oh, really? it's called youarewhatyoulike.com. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to do this. And on that page, you, will, you log in with your Facebook details and it uses the likes that you have to come up with something. So uh, come up with a pretty much a, a vague profile of yourself. So... Um, from my profile, it took. I have 290 likes on my page. 122 of them are music, though. So, wow. yeah. Um, they you used to say you like music a little bit, a little just, bit, just a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. Um, I never got that from you, Amy. Never. No, really? I don't know whether you've picked it up. Um, and 89. They used 89 of my likes in um, my my profile, and it. Um, has five different categories, so openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and stability. And I, I think it was pretty spot on with the things that, that it came up with. And I think Broad might have just... I've, I've just said it for myself. Yeah? Yeah. So, okay, go Broad. Um, so, openness, I'm liberal and artistic. So oh. am I. Um, wow, look at that. I'm, I'm well organised. I'm spontaneous and flexible. Uh-huh. I think they're lying, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm supposedly shy and reserved. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a bit wrong. Um, I'm warm, trusting and cooperative. <laughs> so am I. Oh, good. And I'm calm and relaxed. I'm emotional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, the, 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 I must clarify, this website isn't using the same algorithm no, that's just no. been done in the news story. It's, it's just a, a put it in and see what you can yeah. find out. But um, one sort of worrying thing that did come out of the study was, or there's two sort of worrying things, um, it, it shows you how easily available that information is and how easily people can build profiles on you. And it also, they did point out that the same technology could be used to predict political views and sexual orientation, which could provide threats to people's freedom and even their life in certain places. So, um, I obviously just use Facebook with caution, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, and it's always slightly worrying with those ads that pop up, and you know, whether they're going to start using those sorts of things. I was refreshing before, and I had um, meet single women, and also something about buying diamonds. Oh I, think my God. I don't know. How well, well, yeah, well, there you yeah. go. Meet single women, buy diamonds. <laughs> yeah, so some interesting stuff there. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, I like pages like going out of your way to step onto a crunchy leaf. So I wonder what that says about me. I do like like that after a while. And like swims is the same upside down. It says swims upside down. Love it. Mind blown. Oh, wow. So swims artist. It is. It is. It's pretty amazing stuff. You should like that one on Facebook just saying. (laughs) And the word bed looks like a bed. It does. I like that one too. Oh, Oh. I have a problem. I have a problem. I think when when I was younger, there was a lot of those pages that came out. and Oh, that's so me. I'm going to like that. So everyone knows. And then you just sort of have to go through and go. No. I guess that might also be a drawback of this study. If you've had Facebook for an extended period of time, things that you liked right at the start when you had Facebook when you were a lot younger may have evolved over an extended period of time. You could like completely different things now. You might have changed your ideas and they're still profiling you. Based from on that information, old, that mm. old information, it can be quite an interesting thing because I think you can actually go back and see when you liked each each thing. It can be interesting to look at your who you were development, yeah. mm. and also time. it says that you you know it used eighty nine of your likes in the estimation. So I wonder how is it a random process or I don't know is whether it a percentage of your likes it would or? have to do with the enough amount of information on that page. Yeah. So if you liked a musician who had thirty likes, which is probably not uncommon. Um, for, for you, me. maybe. Um, You're a bit alternative. I'm mainstream. <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, it was saying that a few of the likes that are most indicative of your profile Gautier, ABC TV, Something for Kate, and Lisa Mitchell. So. Yeah. So that, that's, that's on the um, the website. Yeah. And I, I'd imagine there's a similar sort of thing in this algorithm that they've developed is that they, yeah, it has to be things that a lot of people like to make yeah. inferences about yeah. it. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you'd have to be able to establish some information yeah, yeah that's right and i think there's a lot of examples of these sorts of algorithms about the place like um there's the genius function on itunes where yeah. you pick a yeah. song you like and get it to make a playlist based around that song and some songs that can do it and some songs that can't if they're yeah. too uncommon um and i think it's not a problem, <laughs> it's not a problem for me at all no but I, th- I think um you know that that's those sorts of algorithms are out there all the time. I think it's just so worrying when you get something on Facebook where it's all about you and yeah. and, and, and worryingly accurate that all that information is so freely available. Yeah, yeah. well, it's sort of it's similar to a thing that supermarkets were doing a little while ago, where um, you could use. I think maybe it was something like the, similar to, to every every day rewards similar yeah. to it, and mm. you yeah. scanned it, and then it tailored. Um, like it would send you emails and the emails would be tailored to what to what you were buying. So yeah. if you bought a lot of, you know, nappy sand or things like that, they like they would they would know and they would send you specials things. about that. So they it's it's a thing that's happened. Yeah. For quite a while. I think I remember reading something that they could determine if a woman was pregnant mm. very, very accurately by like she was buying like blankets and Tissues yeah, and all of these different chocolate. things that aren't not, aren't necessarily pickles gen- generally related to a baby. Yeah. And then the family actually got really upset about the fact that they sent a whole bunch of baby related stuff to their daughter. Wow. Because they didn't realise their daughter was pregnant, but Target oh. picked it up before oh. they did. Yeah. That's a bit awkward, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. So there you go. The so it awkward consequences. Quite, quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Nothing we have is safe anymore, guys. Fun fact. Mm. <laughs> there we go. Well, look, it's almost time for another um, do try this at home here on Fuzzy Logic. And I was struggling with what to do this week, to be honest. And then I saw a little discovery that um, 
just recently published in the journal Nature Physics, two US researchers have, have effectively created smoke rings in water and knotted them together for the first time. That's amazing. That is pretty cool. Now, this is supposed to be a big breakthrough. I'm not quite sure why, but to be honest, I thought, why not just work out how we can make our own smoke rings? So this is what we can do with our own air zooka. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how to make your own air zooka today on uh, Do Try This at Home, right here on Fuzzy Logic. So let's get it up. Do try this at home. Experiment. Discover. Explore science. Do try this at home. On Fuzzy Logic. Hi, Broderick here from Fuzzy Logic. Today on Do Try This at Home, we're going to make our own air zooka. Air zookas are pretty amazing. They can send strong puffs of wind through the air in a shape called a toroidal vortex. Now, what's a toroidal vortex? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. But first, let's find out how to make an air zooka. To make today's Do Try This at Home, you'll need an empty 600ml soft drink bottle, a balloon, a pair of scissors, some masking tape or gaffer tape, and to help show the effects of the air zooka, it's great to have a candle and some matches, or even some torn up bits of paper can help you out. So let's start with by making the air zooka. To do that, grab your empty 600ml soft drink bottle and we're going to cut out the base of the bottle. So that's the bit that's down the bottom there. So grab your scissors and carefully cut out the base down the bottom until you've cut it off completely. Now kids, if you're trying this at home, you might need mum or dad's help with the cutting. But Awesome. Alright, I've cut off the base of mine. And now I can chuck out the base, I don't need that anymore, but keep the rest of the bottle. Next up, we're going to take the balloon and we're going to cut off the neck of the balloon. In fact, you can almost cut your balloon halfway along the big round part. So you end up with a semicircle of the top of the balloon. Alright, cutting that bit off now. Oh, there we are. Okay, so now you've got the top part of the balloon. You can throw away the neck part. And we're going to stretch the top part over the end of our soft drink bottle. So stretch it, and it becomes like a bit of a skin on a drum or something like that. So stretch over the bottle. There we go. And then take your masking tape and stick it around the edge of your soft drink bottle so that the balloon's not going to go anywhere and it's going to stay on there. Alright, so now we should have our soft drink bottle with the balloon skin on the end and uh, held in place with our masking tape. If you've still got the lid on your soft drink bottle, you can take that off and you can actually throw that away. You don't need the lid anymore. And now you've got an air zooka. It's ready to go. So to test that it's working, you can either tear up little bits of paper and put that on the table or what I'm going to do today is I'm going to light a candle. A tea light candle is fine for this. I'm going to light my candle. There we go. And and now we're going to aim the airzuka at the candle. So pointing the end of the airzuka where the lid was and stretching back our balloon. We're going to stretch it back and let go. So stretch and let go. And with a puff of air out the end of the bottle. Our candle has gone out. 
In fact, you can set yourself some challenges with this. You can see how far away from the candle you can let go of your Ezuka, or see how many candles in a row you can put out, or try a whole lot of different things. But what's actually happening here? Well, when we stretch the balloon, then let it go, it forces air forwards through the bottle. When it reaches the other end of the bottle, the air is pushed out of the small hole at high pressure. This airflow is then can be directed to act on something like the candle or our bits of paper. And the small hole funnels the air towards the candle like a cannon. When it comes out the bottle, it actually forms a shape called a toroidal vortex, which you might know better as a donut shape. This donut of wind can actually pass through the air a lot more easily than just blowing. And so we get this donut of air flowing through, which means we can put out candles from a long distance away. If you want to prove that there's actually a donut of air here, you can fill your air zooka with some smoke or something similar. Now, I wouldn't recommend using smoke from a fire, but you can buy smoke in a can um, from various stores about, about the place. Try and find a science supplier to get that. Fill up your air zooka with smoke and then launch it, and you'll see little donuts of smoke coming out of your air zooka. So it's a really simple and slightly healthier way to make smoke rings. So now you've got your own Airzooka, see how many different ways you can use it. You can mess up people's hair, you can put out candles from across the room, and maybe even at your next birthday, rather than blowing out the candles of your cake, you can use an Airzooka. That's all for today on Do Try This at Home. If you do give it a go, make sure to send us some pictures or post them on our Fuzzy Logic Facebook page. I've been Broderick Matthews for Fuzzy Logic. We'll catch you next time. The time's 22 minutes past 12. It's 22 degrees outside. And you're listening to 98.3 FM here on 2XX Community Radio. Fuzzy Logic is here with Broderick in the studio. Elise, Amy and Sian are joining us. And Sian's got a little story for us about some fish, not in the jungle, um, in the ocean, I'm guessing. Yeah, Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) It's nice when you find fish in the ocean rather than the jungle. So I've got another story about fish now. I'm really on a fish theme today. Yeah, you're liking the fish today. It's got to be a pun there, but... That sounds a bit fishy. Thank you, Elise. So, moving on. Um, Scientists are currently unsure of the migration patterns of bluefin tuna. Um, And Dan Madigan from Stanford University uh, caught 15 bluefin tuna off the west coast... The west coast? The coast of California... And found uh, within all of these bluefin tuna radioactive isotopes, um, cesium-134 and cesium-137. So they found that uh, these fish, when they were really young, actually absorbed these isotopes when they were around Japan. And the cesium-134 has come from Fukushima, and the 137 from um, nuclear testing uh, in about the 60s. And so the levels of the uh, radioactive isotopes within the fish are low enough that they're not harming the fish or the people who are eating them, so it's all good. But they've actually found that it's really useful for tracking the migration of the fish from Japan to California. So the half-life of cesium-134 and cesium-137 differ. So cesium-137 has a half-life of 30.1 years and cesium-134 has a half-life of 2.1 years. 
Um, and so they've used the ratio of 134 to 137 to determine the immigration of these fish. Um, if the, and they found that uh, the fish off the coast of California, if they're younger than 1.6 years, they've immigrated there. But if they're older than 1.7 years, they haven't immigrated there. Um, but due to the half-life of cesium-134, which was 2.1 years, they actually, this method won't be useful for much longer because all of the 134 within the fish will be gone in a while. So they've actually realised that they can adapt this method to use um, uh, other isotopes, so for um, carbon or nitrogen, which tend to be around everywhere and all the time, um, but they vary from region to region. And so using these carbon or nitrogen isotopes, they, can, they think they'll be able to adapt this method to use in the future once the cesium-134 has depleted. And they think that they can also use it for a range of other migrating marine animals that they don't know the migration patterns of. Um, so, for example, albacore tuna, blue sharks, Pacific loggerhead sea turtles, salmon sharks, and common mink whales, and even birds such as sooty shearwaters. So there you go. It's interesting. Try saying that five times faster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, that story actually reminded me of one of my lecturers back at uh, Flinders University, um, who was trying to do a similar sort of thing uh, with his hair. Um, And in fact, this memory is etched in my brain. We came back up from first year to second year, and the very first lecture in second year, our um, our professor had clearly not cut his hair over the um, two-month break that we'd had during summer, and uh, so he's looking a bit bedraggled, (laughs) as he did. And uh, he announced to the class in the first forensics lecture that year that um, I'm growing my hair to help capture terrorists. And we just all looked at him. I mean, look, to be honest, we weren't that put off because he was an interesting man anyway um, and would come out with random statements. But what he was actually doing was he was growing his hair in the hope that they could then later test isotopes within his hair to work out where he'd travelled around the world. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah, well, because as you were saying, um, you know, with the cesium um, ratios from Japan, um, the oxygen... now, he was looking at oxygen and hydrogen ratios, I believe, and possibly carbon as well, yeah. um, because each of these atoms has um, its uh, own radioactive... Uh, sorry, it has different isotopes yeah. of it, not necessarily radioactive, but those uh, isotopes vary in their ratios around the world. So while it might be, um, you know, two to one here in Australia, it could be three to one over in England and those sorts of things. It does vary with geography. And so he travelled quite a lot for um, his uh, research, and so he figured that he was going to grow his hair while he travelled, make notes of where he was. And then as hair is continually growing and he's, um, and its uh, hair is made of uh, chitin? No. Keratin. 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 Thank yeah. you. Chitin's what they're often in animals. Um, keratin. keratin. Um, the keratin's uh, a hydrocarbon and so the hydrogen and carbon that he eats oh. would be taken in and expressed in his hair um, because, you know, normally drugs that you take in that sort of thing are expressed in right. your hair. Marijuana. Yeah. yeah, and so he was hoping that um, the food and drink that he was eating would then cause the isotope ratios to vary and so then when he... Um, and the air he was breathing, and so then when it went and made his hair, you'd be able to find it, and so you'd be able to chop through his hair and it's work like out where he'd been through different areas. Timeline. Timeline. Yeah. Timeline of his so cool. cool. That's right. And Did it work? Do you know? Did he actually do it? Like, well, the, the funny thing is, is this happened back in 2008. 
Yes. And he's still growing his hair. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he is. Oh, really? Oh, he, oh, wow. Okay, well, that was a bit yeah. of a... Yeah, okay. Ca- uh, the last I heard, he hadn't found anyone to be able to test it um, <laughs> and perform these tests. But look, I mean, it's an interesting idea. I don't Very know whether it will actually work or not. The cesium is something that's a bit more easy to trace because it's so unique. And, um, and mm. I don't know quite how you'd work out um, where the hair was when. And, of course, tying it all back to the terrorist thing, oh, the yeah. plan was oh. that he'd then be able to identify hair from take hair from terrorists and identify where they'd been when by looking oh. at the traces within their hair. Oh, awesome. that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. so yeah. that that was the idea. Um, Got to catch the so terrorists yeah, first. So though. yeah, that's very interesting um, about my professor, and I, I, I'm actually curious as to whether his. I haven't seen him for a couple of years, but I'm pretty sure from reports of other people that are at my uni that his hair is still very long and bedraggled, and uh, his hair needs a Facebook page. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe to help me get out there. Yeah, you can see what it likes. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, we're approaching 12.30 now, which means oh. it's almost time for us to finish up here on Fuzzy Logic. Um, but it's been a fantastic day. If you did enjoy the show, make sure you like us on Facebook. Um, we've got our page there, and uh, you can keep up to date with what's happening here on Fuzzy Logic. So, Amy, what would that tell us I about I think that would person? make you uh, a very intelligent and oh. interesting person. So I think that would go, go for you as opposed to against you. In <laughs> fact, I've liked Fuzzy Logic. So. Me too. There we go. Look at us go. (laughs) Lovely. And if you really enjoyed today's show, you can listen again. Our podcasts are all available online. Just jump on iTunes, type in Fuzzy Logic and look for that lovely autumn leaf there where you can download all our previous episodes. I know I'm a bit behind with my uploads, to be honest, so maybe there might even be one, two, three new episodes coming up this afternoon if I get my act together and upload them there. Well, thanks very much for joining me, ladies. Thanks for coming in, Sian. Thanks, Broad. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Broad. Thanks, Elise. Thank you, Broad. And thank you very much for listening. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you had fun with our Science on a Sunday and join us again, same time, same place, for some amazing science that's happening in our world right here on Fuzzy Logic.